Please take your Bibles and turn along with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We are living in an increasingly darkened world. It is a world full of strife and bitterness, impurity of all kinds, a world that calls what is good evil and declares that which is evil to be good. A world of harshness and anger. A world where human isolation is on the rise. And human interaction is increasingly limited to social media or the very brief interaction you may have with your DoorDash delivery person. (laughs) Yes, the world we live in is dark. And it seems to be getting ever darker. When I was a young boy of about seven or eight, my family went on a short vacation to Mammoth Cave National Park. I think it was my first national park in Kentucky. It's the longest known cave system in the world. It consists of a series of tunnels and chambers and passageways stretching out over 400 miles underground. One thing that stands out in my memory of that trip is when a park ranger took us into a vast chamber and had us all sit down. He then warned us that he would be turning out all the lights. He turned out the lights and let our eyes adjust for a few minutes while he explained various features of the cave and told some stories and probably shared a few corny jokes. After a few minutes, our eyes had all adjusted, but it was still so dark that I still couldn't see my literal hand in front of my face. And then the park ranger did something that I will never forget. He lit a single match. He probably couldn't do that today. Some OSHA requirement or something like that. But he lit that single match. And the light from that one match lit up his face, lit up the faces of our tour group, lit up the walls and ceiling of the cave where once we had all been sitting in the oppressive darkness Now it seemed as though we were awash in light. It was a vivid illustration of just how powerful a little bit of light can be, even in the midst of great darkness. Though the darkness was great, that same darkness was dispelled by one small light shining forth in the midst of the blackness. Jesus used this same illustration to describe our role as Christians in the world around us. 
Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Let me read it for you. Jesus' words from his Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now we know that Jesus himself is the true light. He is the light of the world. He is the true source of all spiritual light. John chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 say this, that in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. As Christians, we reflect the life-giving light of Christ to others by the way we live. And this light, shining forth from our lives, serves as a powerful tool in reaching out to those who are still in the darkness. Our good deeds as Christians light up the world around us and shine a light on Jesus Christ, the true light of the world. Peter spoke of the evangelistic power of a transformed life. In 1 Peter 2.12, he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among unbelievers. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The darkness is an opportunity for the light to shine forth. No matter how small and seemingly insignificant that light may be, the darkness is powerless against it. Paul, in this very letter to Titus, has spoken already about the Lord's transforming power and purposes in our lives. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, it speaks of Jesus and Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The light of the gospel has come into our lives as Christians and it has changed us forever. We're not the same people we once were. We've been born again. We've been born from above and the light of the world has come to take up residence within us and it emits out from us into the darkened world around us. Our good deeds serve as small but powerful points of light in the darkness of the world. As we've already seen in this letter, our lives are to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Chapter 2, verse 10. Our lives are to put the transforming power of the gospel on display for all to see. And that is exactly what Paul is instructing us about here as we turn to chapter 3 of Titus. Paul is instructing us about our role in the world as lights in the darkness. Look with me at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. That's our text this morning. Let me read it for us. Writing to Titus, the Apostle Paul says, Remind them 
to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the light that you are, the light that you possess, and the light that you give. Thank you that your light is the light of life, that it gives life to those who receive it. Thank you for the new life that is ours in Christ. Thank you that you haven't left us in our sins and our darkness, but you have come and rescued us By your Father's power and will, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Lord, help us to manifest proof of that transfer in the way we live. Teach us this this morning, we pray, for your glory and for the good of all those who yet remain in darkness. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said that as Christians, we are the light of the world. So this morning, as we walk through this passage, we're going to see seven strategies for light of the world living. Seven strategies for the Christian to live like the light of the world, to live as you are. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men. Here are seven strategies to help us. First strategy, be subject to civic authorities. Be subject to civic authorities. In chapter 2 and verse 15, as we saw last Sunday, Paul has just called Titus to speak and to exhort and to reprove with all authority and to let no one disregard him. And now in chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul shares with Titus more of the teaching content that he is to share with the churches of Crete with all authority. Paul says, remind them here. What Paul is asking Titus to do is to remind them of the things they already know. The ministry of preaching and teaching is in no small part a ministry of reminding Paul told Timothy to do the same thing with the churches at Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 2.14, he says, remind them of these things. They already know it, but you need to remind them of the truth. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Peter gives the same counsel. Therefore, I always will be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. The pastor's task, the preacher's task, oftentimes is simply to remind you of what you already know. Because we're prone to forget. We're prone to wander. We're prone to 
buy what the world is selling. We need to be reminded of these things. And so the ministry of the pulpit is largely a ministry of reminding, a ministry of repeating the truth, reminding us all what is true, what is of lasting value, reminding us all of what matters most. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. I know I've been saying the same thing again and again, but it's no trouble for me, and it is good for you. Church needs to be continually reminded of what she already knows. To be reminded of what she already believes. To be reminded of how she is to live. And this is just what Paul is asking Titus to do here. To remind the church of how she is to live in the world. And the first thing Titus is to remind the church of is that they are to be subject to rulers. Subject to rulers. As we've already seen back in chapter 1 and verse 12, Cretans in general had a reputation for being liars. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. There was a Cretan culture that was pretty rough and rowdy. In addition to that, the Greek historian Polybius recorded that Cretans were known to be seditious and rebellious. They were not model Roman citizens, they were a rowdy bunch, a wild gang. Reminds me a little bit of the scene from The Wild One where someone asked Marlon Brando's character, Hey, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? And he cynically responds, What do you got? I'm rebelling against everything. You tell me what is going on and I'll tell you I'm rebelling against it. I think that summarizes not only the Isle of Crete in those days, but our own time as well. What is our culture rebelling against? Well, what do you got? You name the authority and they're rebelling against it. Knowing all of this, Paul calls Titus to remind the Christians of the various congregations on the Isle of Crete to be subject to rulers and authorities. Paul is reminding them of the truth they already know, a truth that has been undermined recently by false teachers who've crept into the church and have taken positions of teaching and authority and influence and were teaching the opposite of these things. That somehow our freedom in Christ allowed us to be free of all earthly human authority. Paul says, no, no, not so fast. We're to be model citizens who subject ourselves to our civic authorities. Rulers and authorities here are those who constitute civil authority. It includes anyone who is in any level of authority or responsibility within the community. In our own day, this can include elected officials, police officers, 
and other governmental authorities. Christians are to be subject to these various rulers and authorities. The same word was used in chapter 2 and verse 5 of how wives were to be subject to their own husbands. Again in chapter 2 and verse 9 of how slaves were to be subject to their own masters. Here all Christians are to be careful to see to it that they are subject to the various governmental rulers and authorities in their life. To be subject to another is to willfully place yourself under their authority. It is to recognize their authority, to honor their authority, and to place yourself under their authority, willingly. It is to demonstrate a posture and attitude and actions of submission to another's authority. And in a culture that was known to have a strong streak of rebellion and sedition running through it, Christians who willfully and joyfully submitted themselves to governing authorities would shine like lights in the darkness. This is, of course, similar to what Paul wrote in greater length to the church at Rome in Romans 13. Let me just read for you. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 13. Shouldn't apologize for making you turn to Romans 13. It's good for you. Romans 13. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Believers can willfully and even joyfully submit to governing authorities because we understand that government is established by God for our good and our blessing in the midst of a fallen world. Government, as designed by God, is to encourage good behavior reward good behavior and discourage bad behavior and it's been given the sword as a minister of God to bring wrath on the one who practices evil Christians more than anyone else should have a positive view of human government I'm glad I didn't hear a collective sigh or a groan Christians, more than anyone else, should have a positive view of human government because we know where it came from. 
It came from God himself. As a gift to humanity, as a restraint upon evil, as an encouragement of the good. Now, we don't necessarily have to have a positive view of any particular government or administration or even a particular form of government, but we should have a positive view of government in general because we know it has come to us from God and it comes for our good. Now, are there ever times when we should not submit to governing authorities or rulers? Of course there are. There are times. Whenever a governing authority commands us to do something that is clearly forbidden by God or whenever governing authority forbids us from doing something that God has clearly commanded, in these instances, we must obey God rather than man. Francis Schaeffer, writing in his great book, A Christian Manifesto, said this, at a certain point there is not only the right but the duty to disobey the state. There comes a time and a point in a Christian's life when they must obey God rather than man. There's a long history of Christian civil disobedience. And there are several biblical examples of civil disobedience in the Scriptures. The Hebrew midwives refused to kill the male babies as they were being born, Exodus 1.17. Moses repeatedly defied Pharaoh, Exodus 7-12. through 12. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down and worship the statue of the king, Daniel 3. Daniel refused to stop praying despite the king's decree, Daniel 6. Peter and John kept on preaching when they had been told by the authorities to stop, Acts chapter 4. And of course, Paul's own death at the hands of Roman executioners was a result of his refusal to stop preaching Jesus Christ. There clearly are times when Christians must not submit to governing authorities. Whenever an earthly authority of any kind, beyond the government here, whether it's a husband or an employer or some other earthly authority, whenever an earthly authority of any kind commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us from doing something that God commands, we must obey God rather than man. But the clear testimony of Scripture is that these instances where civil disobedience is required will be few. We don't see it on every page of Scripture. In the vast majority of circumstances, the believer's obligation is to submit themselves willfully to their governing authorities. In a time of increasing anti-authoritarianism, a time of cynicism, a time of growing rebellion, Christians should be known for their willing submission to governing authorities. Christian, are you known for that? Second, light of the world strategy is to obey the law. Very similar to the first. Many of these overlap with each other. Not only are Christians to submit themselves to governing authorities, but they are also to be examples of obedience. 
Christians are to be exemplary citizens who obey the laws of the land. Whether it's tax laws or traffic laws, Christians must be those who respect the law and obey the law. But for the Christian, disobeying the law and defiance of human authority are to be exceptions and not the rule. For the Christian, disobeying the law or defying governmental authority is to be the nuclear option. It's the button you push only when you are absolutely certain that you must and only when the situation is absolutely clear. Why be so cautious in disobeying the law and in defying authority? Because as Paul says in Romans 13, if we resist the government for unjustified reasons, we are actually resisting God himself. And that will result in God's judgment. So we never break the law knowingly or disobey government willfully. We never do it rashly, we never do it flippantly, but rather soberly and with much prayer and careful consideration. But the regular, normal, operating mode of the Christian is to be obedience to the law. Obeying the law, following the rules. Staying within the lines established by our governing authorities. Where at all possible. Christian, are you manifesting the light of Christ in the way you submit to government and obey the laws of the land. A third strategy for light of the world living is be ready for every good deed. Paul says here that Titus is to remind the Christians to be ready for every good deed. To be ready is to be prepared. It's to be looking for it. Expectantly. It's to anticipate and plan for and eagerly look out for the arrival of something. This word, to be ready, is most often used in the New Testament of being ready for the Lord's return. Here it's used in reference to being ready for and anticipating opportunities to help others by way of good deeds. Christians are to be characterized by their good deeds. Good deeds play a prominent role here in this letter to Titus. Chapter 1, verse 16, the false teachers profess to know God, but they deny God by their sinful deeds. They are worthless of doing any good deed. Chapter 2 and verse 7, young men are to, in all things, show themselves an example of good deeds. Chapter 2 and verse 14 says that Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. A little later on, Titus 3.8, 
He says, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And then again in verse 14 of chapter 3, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Paul seems to think good deeds are central to the life of the Christian. And central to the Christian's witness in a dark world. What are good deeds? Well, good deeds are anything that's helpful or beneficial to another person. It can be any small act of kindness or any large sacrificial act. The Christian is never saved by their good deeds but they should be known for their good deeds. Good deeds are never the root of the believer's salvation, but they are the fruit of the believer's salvation. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. But we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone And that faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by fruit. And good works are the fruit of our faith in Jesus Christ. It shows that we've been born again. It shows that we are like our Father who is in heaven. It shows that we are following the path of our Savior Jesus Christ who constantly went about doing good. We're to be ready for every good deed. Christian, are you ready? Are you looking? Are you eyeing out and sizing up opportunities to do good to others? Not so that some good can come back to you, but solely to bless others, to be a blessing to others, to do good to them. This is how we manifest the light of the world. Fourthly, fourth strategy for light of the world living, malign no one. The word used here is the word from which we get our English word blaspheme. Normally used in reference to God, to take God's name in vain, to speak ill of him, but it can be used of speaking of another person. It's to speak in a disrespectful way that demeans, that denigrates, or that maligns another. It is to speak down to another person, disrespectfully, or to speak badly about another person. It includes all kinds of sinful speech directed to or about another person, including insults, slander, gossip, cursing, and lying about another person. All of these are misuses of the tongue that God gave us. Tongue that he gave us to bless his name and to bless other people with our words and our speech. 
course, the power of the tongue is legendary. James writes about this in James 3, verses 6 through 10. He says, the tongue is a fire. The unredeemed tongue, the unsanctified tongue, the uncontrolled tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not be this way. tongue is powerful the tongue has the ability to cut and do irreparable harm some bells can never be unrung some words can never be undone careful with your words malign no one It's interesting in the Greek, no one means no one. No one is deserving of a vicious verbal attack. Malign no one. Let us be careful with our tongues, brothers and sisters. Let us be light in the darkness, in a culture whose speech is completely unbridled. Just read the comments comments section. Go to some terrible place like next door. Read what your neighbors are saying about each other. It's vicious. Let's not be numbered among them. Fifth, be peaceable. Be peaceable. The word here means that you're not looking for a fight. You're a lover, not a fighter. Let that be true of us as Christians. That we're known as lovers and not fighters. You're not a person who's always quarreling, always arguing, always fighting with other people, always in a dispute, always in a disagreement. This is one of the requirements of anyone who would be an elder or a pastor. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, The Lord's bondservant, the Lord's slave, must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. A peaceable life is to be the life of a Christian. And a peaceable life is a quiet life, a life without unnecessary drama, a life lived largely minding your own business, keeping your nose out of other people's business, 
That's what Paul was getting at, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. He says, make it your ambition, Christian, to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will ha- behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Some of you have too much time on your hands and you're looking for a fight. Get busy with something else. Work with your hands. Lead a quiet life. Tend to your own business. Christian, if you can look behind you and see in your wake a sea of broken relationships... You just might be a quarrelsome person. You just might be a person who likes to fight. You just might be a person who never wants to give in, never wants to concede, never wants to let love cover and move on. You just might be a person who always seems to have to have the last word, who always has to be proven right. That's not the Spirit of God working in you. That's another spirit. It's a spirit of pride. You want to be a light in the world? Sixthly, be gentle. Be gentle. Again, a lot of overlap here with be peaceable. Be gentle. Gentleness here means kindness, courteousness, being considerate, being magnanimous, showing a deferential attitude toward others, deferring to them wherever you can, putting them first. It means that you're gracious and patient. You're someone with whom it is very difficult to get into an argument. <laughs> I want to be that person. We don't fly off the handle. We aren't contentious. We're quick to give in and let others have their way, have their preferences. I can't help but think here this product of a misspent youth, of Looney Tunes cartoon, the Goofy Gophers. Their names were Mac and Tosh. And they spoke with British accents. And these two goofy gophers were always politely deferring to each other. After you. No, after you. No, you first. No, I insist. It's hard to have an argument with someone who's always seeking to put you first. And that's the idea here. Christians are to be known for their gentleness. Gentle responses, gentle answers, turn away wrath. Some of us need to grow, grow, grow. We need the Lord's help. Seventh, finally, show humble consideration for all people. Again, this overlaps. 
significantly with what's gone before it. One of the lexicons describes the word used here as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of our own self-importance. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of our own self-importance. This speaks of a behavior that is free from pride, free of arrogance, free of cockiness. It's to have the same kind of humble mindset that Jesus had. Recorded so beautifully for us in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind, lowliness of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus loved us all the way to the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Humbly serving others. And this isn't something we just do for the people we like. For those people we get along with and like to spend time with. It's something Paul calls us to do for all men. In other words, for everyone. Jesus talked about this too. That the quality and the nature of our love and service to others is tested not so much by those that we like being around, but it is tested with those who are a challenge for us. For those who've done us wrong, done us dirty, been unkind to us, those who annoy us. Jesus said, again, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is good even to the unbeliever. God is good even to the rebel. And aren't we glad that he is? Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Humble love for others will cause you, especially your enemies, especially those who have been unkind to you, especially those who are annoying to you, Humble, loving service shown to others will cause you to shine like lights in the darkness. Christian friends, we have a great opportunity all around us. The darkness seems to be growing darker still. 
But in the midst of all this darkness, we have the opportunity to bring gospel light and hope and peace to those sitting in the darkness. And oftentimes, that light comes from a simple act of kindness, a simple act of loving, humble servant service, a simple act of not responding in kind to an unkind word, but responding instead with kindness and gentleness and peacemaking, care and concern. May the transforming power of the gospel continue to do its work in our lives, making us, in the midst of the darkness, brighter and brighter lights for Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, as we go through a list like this, we're reminded of how dark our hearts still remain. Even though our hearts have been flooded with the love of Christ, the darkness of our former lives still hangs on. We are prideful, we are petty. We use our tongues to curse instead of to bless. We're not ready and looking for opportunities to bless others. We're looking and ready for opportunities for us to be blessed, for us to advance, for us to be served. Lord, forgive us. We thank you that for as great and many as our sins are, Lord, your grace is greater still. And the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection are sufficient to cover all sins when confessed. We thank you, Jesus, for showing us the way. Throughout your life, you were ready to do good to everyone. Throughout your life, you served with gentleness and kindness and patience and love. Even as you hung on the cross, you blessed your enemies. You said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. What an example, Lord Jesus, you've left for us. What a light you were in this world. And what a light we can be as we follow you. Make it so, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.